The World According to Gorf. Welcome to Geeks Night Out, a gathering in West Los Angeles of David, Mark, John, and Gorf to discuss all things science fiction, fantasy, and Jewish. Jews in space! The story that I heard through the rumor mill was that Stephen Hill, uh, Shlomo Hill, the best known as the DA on Law and Order for 10 seasons, uh, is an Orthodox Jew. And he was in the first season of Mission Impossible, which I believe was produced by Desilu, which is, of course, the famous uh, production company, uh, Desi Arnaz and uh, Lucio Ball. Ball. Thank you. I'm a little jet-lagged, tired, etc. So thanks for pulling me through on some of these references. The story I had heard was he had gone up to the top of the Desilu production building. Desilu also produced Star Trek and had somehow or other invited William Shatner, Captain Kirk, the star of Star Trek, up to the, the rooftop to put on tefillin, phylacteries. And Does it, anybody know what a phylactery is, by the way? I have no idea, and I'm Jewish. <laughs> what is it, a Greek word or something? What do we, I assume. Nobody knows what a phylactery is. I think it's, it's probably like... <laughs> it's like we, we say phylactery to people who we think don't know what tefillin are, but nobody right. knows what phylacteries are. It's like the holiday of Sukkot, and we use the lulav, and the lulav is a palm frond. That's, that's another good one. That's another that's way. At least people know what a right, frond, right? What's a frond? I guess people don't know what that is. So on top of the Desilu building, the rumor I had heard was that Stephen Hill, who was at that time playing Dan Briggs, who was the Mission Impossible leader, had uh, he's an Orthodox Jew, and he had asked William Shatner to come up to the rooftop to do... Uh, Roof, uh, rooftop. Roof, rooftop, thank you. That's my Chicago accent coming through the rooftop, to ask him to be a part of some Jewish ceremony. And Shatner went up there, Captain Kirk from Star Trek, and freaked out. Hill, he's trying to get me with leather straps, and I don't know what this is about, and complained to a producer and got Hill in trouble or some such. So that's the well, story. Wait, was it a minion, or was it actually to... No, the story I'd heard was to actually put on late film. So in preparation for this bit, I uh, went to the almighty Google and looked up the actual story. According to Wikipedia, which does cite some original source, the actual story is that Stephen Hill was looking to fill out a minion, a quorum of ten ten Jewish men for prayer, and he had six for Mission Impossible, and he called down to uh, Shatner to say, how many Jews are there on Star Trek? I need four more guys for a prayer quorum. Can you bring yourself, Nimoy, Herb Solo, and I think find one other guy, and then I'll have my minion. And that's when uh, Shatner ran down to Herb Solo and said, you're never going to believe what Hill was doing. And that was the actual story. Apparently after that, coincidence or not, uh, Mr. Hill did not work for another 10 years in acting. And he went into real estate and uh, did some writing. And 10 years later, got back into acting and, of course, landed the role for Adam Schiff. But here's the, the interesting thing about the role in Law and & Order. And I'm not sure if I'm correct about this. This is my observation, being an observant Jew. He never touched... You're very observant. I am. Yeah. I am. I watch a lot of TV. That's yeah, what I exactly. 
he never touched a member of the opposite sex in the ten years that he played that role. He as was a Shomer Nagia? Yes, as an observant Which Jew. Which means he guards against the touch? So there's a specific practice of being modest and therefore interpreting modesty as not having physical contact with members of the opposite sex that you're not related to, married to, or a sibling of. That would have made it really difficult for Shatner to play Captain Kirk. Yes. Yeah. How does that, is, is oh, that so, a prohibition on acting as well then? Well, it applies yes. in all aspects of your life, even professionally. There's no reason to do that. So I recall very vividly that Stephen Hill had an episode, and you may recall, Law and Order did not delve into the characters' personal lives all that much, if at all. But there was one episode very vividly burned into my memory where Stephen Hill was playing a scene in which he had to say goodbye to his wife, who had been stricken with cancer, was on her deathbed. So it was an actress on the bed, playing dead, and he had a whole soliloquy, a goodbye soliloquy, and it was one of the most moving, affecting, touching scenes of acting that I had seen on television, and only afterwards did I realize he was not holding her hand. He never touched her, he never mm. held his, her hand, mm. there was no physical contact. He did the entire thing through his emotional acting. And I'm wondering, I'm theorizing, I'm conjecturing even, even, even. that his religious beliefs uh, compelled him to make these acting choices. Conjecturing even... Yeah, that's my that's my uh, my Jewish story. Yeah, but you don't know whether the scene actually called for anything different. No, but I'd be I'd love to talk with some of the producers and find out what the behind the scenes story of that really was. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I don't know, uh, John. You were talking a little bit earlier about uh, Star Trek and religion in the twenty third century. Yeah, the uh, the interesting thing about Star Trek is that the man who created it, Gene Roddenberry, was, was an avowed atheist. Um, his his belief is that in the in the future, uh, we will grow out of our need for religion. At least that was what he believed, you know, internally himself. And uh, for those people who are aware that Star Trek had two pilots, uh, the first one was a pilot actually, being for the pilot, yeah, being being that that episode that you create so that the executives can tell you whether or not they want to buy your show, and of course they end up you know telling you all the things they want to change. And in the case of Star Trek. Uh, the first pilot was made with an actor by the name of Jeffrey Hunter playing Captain Christopher Pike. Um, and uh, it was shown to CBS first. Uh, they didn't want it. They uh, thought it was um, they, they, they thought it was too much of a kid's show and they wanted something a little bit more mature. They ended up buying Lost in Space instead. Go figure. Um, but to show you how there is just no consistency at all in Hollywood, they took it over to NBC. Desi Liu and Gene Roddenberry took it over to NBC. And NBC said, no, it's actually too grown up and too cerebral. We want you to dumb it down. Um, by that point, uh, Gene Roddenberry wasn't quite sure what to do, but NBC did something that was very, very unusual in Hollywood. They asked for a second pilot. They said, do it again. Show us what it can be if you put more action in it. Uh, Jeffrey Hunter was no longer available to play uh, Captain Pike, so it was recast, and William Shatner was uh, cast to play Captain Kirk. But they still had this one-hour pilot uh, that was around, and in the middle of the first season, they made a two-part episode that was half flashback to where Spock was on the Enterprise because he was in the pilot, the original pilot, uh, 13 years ago under Captain Pike. And the story of that episode is that the Enterprise goes to the planet Talos IV, and Pike is kidnapped. And he is kidnapped by these super-intelligent telepathic Talosians. 
and the tushy heads. The tushy heads, as we like to call them. Yeah, <laughs> Which right. itself is a Jewish word. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Anyway, the way that they were able to get Pike to do what they wanted to is they put illusions in his head, made him believe what they. Are we getting to believe. religion anytime soon? We are. Okay. Because <laughs> at one point to punish him, they proceed to set him afire. There's a punishment. He is burning. There's oil dripping off of him. He's all on fire. He's obviously in pain. And apparently, this was supposed to be hell. This was a metaphor for hell. But right after the illusion is over, the Telosian keeper says to, to Pike, from a fable you once heard in childhood, which was Gene Roddenberry's nod, nod, wink, wink, to say hell religion in general, right. is now a fable. fable we tell to children. Right. And we've grown out of that in the 23rd century. Did he write that script, though? Yes, he did. He did, okay. Yes, the cage was one of his. Because uh, he did not write... Yeah. Red and Circuses? Apollo. Oh, sorry. Who did Martin's not Adonis? Right. Adonis. Adonis, but it's spelled incorrectly in the... Is it? No, I don't think it is. I thought it was A-D-O-I-N-I-S. If it was A-D-O-N-A-I-S, then it would be a Hebrew word for God. But uh, that was an episode that really delved into the religion theme and, and concluded it in a Roddenberry kind of a way that we have outgrown religion in the 23rd century. And, and, and just so for the folks that haven't been watching Star Trek every hour of their lives like we have, the, uh, the, the story of that is that the Enterprise meets the Greek god Apollo, who is oh, stuck on a planet out there. And apparently the Greek gods were simply very... Uh, advanced aliens who had come to Earth thousands and thousands of years ago and had been worshipped as gods. Um, and Apollo actually kind of believed himself to be a god. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact is that, you know, he, he was, believed his own public relations. But at the end, what we discover is that, uh, yeah, mankind, having grown up to the stars itself, you know, almost becoming gods ourselves. And, we're and Kirk said, we've outgrown you. We've outgrown you. Yeah. So, you another. Know, and yet, there was a Star Trek episode called Bread and Circuses where we visit a planet that is basically a 20th century version of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And at the end, we discover that the worshippers of the sun, which were sort of rising up in rebellion against the Romans of the 20th, 20th century there, um, we discover at the end that the sun wasn't the sun up in the sky, but the son of God. So in that way, Star Trek actually had a very over reference to Christianity. And in fact, it was in a wondering, or with a sense of wonderment, that Uhura, the communications officer of the Enterprise, said, almost with a smile on her face as she had this epiphany, to use another religious term, that that's what they were talking about. And then, I think it was Kirk who said, and the word is only spreading now. Which also implies that, in fact, it's if it's spreading to that part of the galaxy um, only now... Either it's a historical observation, well, look how long it took to get here, or, you know, the word which we all are enlightened by is only spreading now. So there was a subliminal feeling that maybe that was, you know, uh, an endorsement of Christianity in, in the future, or maybe of just monotheism or, or religion in general. I don't know. What do you think of that, John? Well, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, the thing about Star Trek is there are a lot of different writers who had a lot of different axes to grind, so to speak. Right. 
across and how much how much control did Rottenberry uh, have to you know in terms of the show at that point the message at that point was well, I think in, in the late second season I think Roddenberry was still very much the showrunner right. um, it wasn't until the third season so his fingerprints are all over those episodes then, right? in, in a lot of ways but I think you know what Roddenberry wanted to do was to explore our society through the eyes of the 23rd century and obviously there was a certain amount you can't ignore religion mm-hmm. You know, it's so much a part of our lives here in the 20, 20th and later 21st century. Right. Uh, I'm very curious. Do you think that the, you know, removal of religion from science fiction television shows in those days was something that the networks were not happy with or that, you know, somebody somebody said, you know, hey, let's not take this too far? Well, actually, I'm going to challenge you on that. A uh, very early episode of uh, Lost in Space, they have crashed the Robinson family is alive basically because of the grace of God. And there is a scene where the family prays. Hmm. And they give... So that's not challenging me. That supports the idea it's, that they yeah. were encouraging religion in to, the future. To an extent, I think they really were. I mean, the thing about science fiction on television is... Dr. Smith. <laughs> Danger! Uh, don't go to the religion! Uh, <laughs> uh, but or, I, or include religion or we will be cancelled. Well, I think, you know, they were, they, they were kind of walking a very thin line, as they always do, you know, on television and religion, because you don't want to get too religious, unless, of course, you know, you're an evangelical network, uh, but you can't leave it out entirely, or you're godless. Star Trek obviously had a lot of very, you know, controversial things it dealt with. It dealt with racism, it dealt with the war in Vietnam, and all these things were kind of hidden in the science fiction. But realistically, what you had as far as major television science fiction was Lost in Space, Star Trek, Space 1999, and Battlestar Galactica, and now you're up to 1980 and you get into the Buck Rogers and stuff like that. But there really wasn't... Beady, 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 beady. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mark, can you do that This one? is a science fiction show, so... Yeah. <laughs> I, David did it pretty well, I thought, just there. Beady, 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 beady. What's up, Buck? What's up, Buck? What's up, Buck? Bet the great Mel Blanc. Yes, oh, that's right. That's right. Was that? I didn't know that. The voice of Bugs Bunny did Tweaky. I forgot that. That's true. But if you look at the science fiction that that had been done on on, on television, and by the way, before Star Trek, you also had the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone had its own God religion episodes as well. Because I think you actually had God religion episodes, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily this underlying theme of these are religious people. Right. You know, even Lost in Space, there was that one episode of them praying with them praying, and that was it. So what you had ultimately is, in Space 1999, there were one or two God episodes of Space 1999. In fact, one episode where they meet God. They go through a black hole. It's called Black Sun. And in the middle of it, there's this ethereal voice that speaks to John Koenig and says, I think a thought in every thousand of your years. And Koenig says, are you God? Hmm. Um, very deep. Even years later, I remember that. That was 1974, I think. I what about Babylon 5, by the way? Are there any references there to uh, God? or A lot, actually. Um, but interestingly enough, Joe Straczynski, another Jew, um, had his own way. Also, also a secularist, right? Who was, who was not... Although he seems like he has... I mean, first of all, Roddenberry was not Jewish, but um, Straczynski seems to have had a little more of a sense of his religious background... Because I think it came up a number of times, right? Well, one of his characters was the second-in-command, Susan Ivanova. Right. Who is not only Jewish, but there is an episode where a rabbi comes to Babylon 5 to help her deal with the death of her father. Right. And there is another episode... Who is played by... 
who was that actor? Was it played by a very by a Jew, famous Jewish actor? This wasn't it the same actor who played Worf's father. I thought that, and you yes. might be correct about I think, that. I think you're right. And what's his name? I'll have to look up on the internet. Um, I, know. I know. Problem is, in, my, uh, in a recent uh, interview, somebody was talking about Herschel Bernardi, and I can't get that name out of my head now. But that's not not the actor. Okay, I saw him at the coffee bean up here recently. In fact, New Page. He was sitting out uh, having coffee. Were you and I? At a restaurant in Beverly Hills once, and uh, or was I with somebody else? And Shatner and Nimoy were at the next. That's week. me. No, that was not. That me. that was me. No way. Oh no, I'm thinking of at, at what was it called? F X E F Y E F Y E. I told you the story, right? F Y E is uh, uh, was I don't think it even exists anymore. Hollywood memorabilia oriented oh, yeah. store, and right here in Century City, the Century City Mall. I was walking through because I had to buy somebody a gift in the bookstore when they had bookstores. And I passed by FYE and there was this really long snaking line. And I asked somebody, what's going on over here? And they pointed inside the window and said, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock from Star Trek just released a DVD about their friendship and their signing copies. And for a second I thought, oh, how interesting it would be to stop in there and all that. But the line was really long and I was in a rush, and I had a certain purpose, so I didn't bother. Okay, I go buy my book, I come back, uh, half an hour later or so, having totally forgotten about this, and the line is completely gone. The ropes are still up, but the line's completely gone. And I asked the page, who was standing at the entrance, uh, just out of curiosity, uh, are uh, Shatner and Nimoy still there? And she said, well, yes, they are. They're, they're going to be leaving in five minutes, but if you're interested, go in. So I went right in and went right up to them, and I, to this day, feel a little bit bad because I was far more interested in Leonard Nimoy than I was William Shatner. Mm. And I told the story about how, in my life, a, a formative event was watching Star Trek when it was already in reruns in syndication with my father. My mother and father separated when I was very young, but this is one of the few memories I have. We watched Star Trek together. Mm. Geeked out, you might say, since this is Geek's Night Out. And uh, that, that to this day is very meaningful. So I wanted to thank both of these actors for that memory. And Bill Shatner was actually very warm and gracious and looked me right in the eye and, and drew me in and said, I appreciate you sharing that memory and that's really what this is all about. Mm. These are the, this is the reason that we do these things. Yeah. And then I went up to Leonard Nimoy and I said, I, I went to school in Boston and I probably uh, went to the same shoal that you went to where your family's from, Boston, you know, and uh, hey, give me, here's the sign of the coin, live long and prosper, and that was the end of that. So that, I actually, you know, I met a man who grew up with Leonard Nimoy in Boston and who said that, you know, they used to work in some Jewish youth group and they would go around knocking on doors to raise money for some, you know, Israel cause or a Jewish cause. I think it was in Israel. Uh, maybe it was just for, you know, some Jewish youth group. Well, I'm curious where the name Nimoy comes from. N-I-M-O-Y. I mean, what what is that? Yeah, it's interesting. It must be shortened, I think, from something that's Yeah, Nimoski, who knows? Nissenbaum. <laughs> I have no idea. So, years later, didn't we have some kind of a, a, a major federation? The, the General Assembly, the GA of Federation, a Jewish federation, was here in Los Angeles, and one of the events that they had it's was... It's a Jewish federation, not the... Starfleet. Very good. Oh, very good. Very good. <laughs> yes, that's right. United Federation of Planets. That's right. The difference being, of course, that the United Federation of Planets is devoted to 
uh, bringing together alien races and alien planets in peaceful cohabitation. I have his name, by the way. I yeah. I continue from it's with a G, right. isn't it? Nope. You want to try again? Give me the first name. Theodore. Bikel. Bikel. How could you forget Theodore Bikel? We all could forget And he the... was Worf's father also, right? He was Worf's father. Wow. Didn't we serve This event at the GA was hosted at the Disney Theater downtown in Los Angeles. And Leonard Nimoy was the uh, MC of the evening, which hmm. was a pretty big thrill, both being in this amazing uh, state-of-the-art theater and, of course, seeing Leonard Nimoy. After the show was over and we were all let out, we were walking down the street uh, towards our car or however it was that we got there, towards our hotel, I don't recall what it was. And somebody said, did you notice that gentleman standing on the street by the stage door that you just passed? And I said, no, who was it? And they said it was Leonard Nimoy. So, of course... Exit, stage left. <laughs> I beat a path right back to him. And I happen to have a copy of my Voices for Israel CD on me. I handed it to him and I said, I just wanted to hand this to you and thank you for all the years of entertainment and uh, pleasure and Jewish pride that you have given me. And here is my expression of my Jewish pride through this album that benefits uh, victims of terrorism in Israel by bringing together Jewish people, Jewish stars, of all backgrounds to sing for Israel, so I want you to have it. And he was very gracious, he said thank you, and uh, his wife was there, and he introduced his wife, and I think we talked for uh, a minute or two about his background, I don't remember exactly what the conversation was, and then the limo came, and they whisked him off, and that was that. But I found it to be this incredibly, there's no other word for it, uh, gracious, menchy, elder Jewish actor. That's how we found him. Mark and I met him also on the set of uh, at least one of the movies, of Star Trek, and uh, he was extremely gracious and friendly and nice. He was. I do remember uh, one scene, uh, I think it was during Star Trek Four, the scene where Spock's memory is being tested and he's wearing a white robe with a hood. Oh, and yeah. He's sitting in the director's chair. Studying uh, the was, script. Studying the script, yeah. and uh, the, somebody was touching up his ears. And there was a friend of his on the set, and I don't know who this guy was. This gentleman was uh, a friend of his, I think, and... and uh, Leonard Nimoy saw him come up, and uh, he said, how do I look? And the man said, you look very Talmudic. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that to this day. And Nimoy laughed or something. Yeah, he did. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah, yeah. So in later incarnations of Star Trek, religion was very central. Well, we cannot talk about Star Trek V because it was so bad that I think it has to be struck from the record. What does God need with a starship? Right. Well, yeah. Roddenberry himself considered it apocryphal. But moving beyond that, I'm thinking specifically of the latter seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation mm -hmm. with the Bajorans and their religion. And oh, even more than that. Deep Space Nine. Let's look at the Klingons. I mean, I think the Klingons was when Star Trek finally said, okay, well, let's actually start looking at a culture, <clears throat> um, including their worship, their traditions. I, I'd say that the Klingons were much closer to the Jews than to the Christians because Jews have so many traditions you know, things that they do and ways that they do it and languages that they do it in. And I know that, you know, Christians have, you know, they go to church every Sunday and Catholics have to get baptized and all that sort of thing. But right, Jews have cantors, which sound a lot like, their singing sounds a lot like opera. And of course, mm -hmm. Klingons love opera. So I'd say in a lot of ways, the, the Klingons sort of opened that, that doorway. I mean, even before Babylon 5, Star Trek The Next Generation, which... You know, let's face it, you had, you had Buck Rogers and you know, a couple other little things in the early 80s, but it wasn't until 87 that science fiction really became accepted by the yuppies. 
Mm-hmm. You could actually be cool and watch Star Trek in 1988 or 1989 when the Next Generation was, you know, the number two show, you know, after Jeopardy and syndication. And there were the Klingons, and Worf was the window to all of these strange things that, you know, if you're not Jewish and you watch what the Jews do, we're weird. I always thought the Vulcans were more Jewish. Initially they were. Yeah. I, th- I think in the original Star Trek the Vulcans were Jewish, but... We didn't see as much of Spock's culture in the original Star Trek. We saw the one episode where we go to Vulcan. And, and, and for those folks that don't know, that Vulcan salute with the, uh, the, the, the two fingers stuck together, the other two fingers stuck together, and the thumb out, that little V-shaped thing that lived long and prosper, is actually taken from when Leonard Nimoy was a... W, actually. A little W. It was actually the letter Sheen yes. uh, in, in, the, in the Israeli alphabet, in the Hebrew alphabet. Hebrew. Yeah. Sorry about that. And, um, but the Israelis use it. So. The Israelis use it, that's true. They do speak Hebrew there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, when he was growing up in Boston, and he would go to shul, you know, during the High Holy Days, the congregation was supposed to turn around and not face the rabbis, because the rabbis gave a blessing, and apparently the blessing was so powerful. They the were Kohens, actually, the high priests. Yes, yeah. the high priests. You were, actually, you, know, priests. you were actually getting a blessing directly from God, that if you looked at them... Mm-hmm. You know, that was like, forget about it, way too much power for you. You, you know? turned to stone, you, or you, you would die. Blind, yes. You would go blind, yes. Like right. But he stuck a peak. Of course he did, because he was a little boy, and he wanted to know what the, and what all the, the high priests were do doing. All the boys do that. And he saw yeah, them with their, with their hands in this salute, and he practiced it. And when Gene Roddenberry had this episode where Spock goes back to Vulcan to get married, in the beginning of the second season, and... Nimoy went up to... to it was a Jewish team. wedding. Yeah, sort of. Uh, and, and, and he said... Well, they had a shot of them. They had, they had the marriage arranged. It was an arranged marriage. Right? It was. Yeah. 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 Um, but, but actually, it was Nimoy who went up to Gene Roddenberry and said, you know, I think the Vulcan should have kind of like a secret handshake, you know, kind of like the, 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 the scouts or something that they do. And, and, and Gene said, well, what, what do you think, you know... It, it should be, and well, Nimoy just had that, you know, in his pocket, you know, pulls out his hand with a little Vulcan salute, he looks at the letter V, you know, with the thumb out, it's like W, V for Vulcan, and, you know, anyway, Gene's a great idea. What was very interesting is that Celia Lovsky, who played the Vulcan high priestess in that episode, had not been practicing the Vulcan salute for her entire life the way that Nimoy had, so she couldn't do it. <laughs> so in the scene where she greets Spock, and she holds up her Which hand. is the letter Chet in Hebrew. Yes, Spach, she says. Yeah. Um, I, loved, I loved her accent. You know, aren't he Vulcan? Or aren't he human? Um, but when she holds up her hand for the first time, what we don't see off camera, underneath, is there's a person actually spreading her fingers out for her, just out of the camera. So when she holds her hand up, the fingers are spread. Yeah. Otherwise, she wasn't going to be able to do it. Back to starting the next generation, the Bajorans that you were talking about, initially, the Bajorans were created to be more like the Palestinians. And yes, for sure. The Jews. Which created some very uncomfortable episodes where they were clearly messaging in ways that, you know, could be seri- easily construed to be the Israeli-Palestinian. I always thought that that's what they were after, and people on the show that I asked about it denied it. Yeah. But it, it seems... It's like undeniable to well, me. Well, I mean, they, they denied the specific 
connection to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and they said it represents all conflicts. So it could be the Ireland conflict with England, it could be something that happened in the former Czechoslovakia, etc., etc. But it still seemed very overt. Yeah, for, for people who want to check it out yourself, the episode where we first meet the Bajorans was Ensign Rowe, I think it's either fifth or sixth season of Star Trek The Next Generation, and uh, R.O. is the name, Ensign Rowe. Um, but it, they looked very, very much like Palestinians who had been forced in, into a refugee status, but very quickly... And terrorism was an element. Terrorism was an element. But very quickly they changed into the Jews, because when Deep Space Nine started, the Cardassians were essentially the Nazis. Right. And in an episode called Duet, which was the second to last episode of the first season of Deep Space Nine, um, one of the Cardassians comes to the station and turns out to be the Butcher of Galatep. Basically, one of those really horrific Nazis. Like Mengele or something. Exactly, yeah. who was responsible for literally tens A of thousands, criminal. if not hundreds of thousands of deaths. War criminal, and they've caught him. And it turns out that he wants to be caught. He wants to be recognized for what he did. And what we find out at the end of the episode, in a wonderful plot twist, is that he wasn't the Butcher of Galatet. Right. He was a scared file clerk who did not stand up. Great episode. Great episode. Great episode. He, he, he did not believe in what his people were doing, but he right. was powerless to stop them. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting take. And he was on, embarrassed about his cowardice, right? Very much. And it was, Which is why he took on the persona of the Butcher. And, and, and in his way, by taking on the persona of the butcher, he wanted to try to make his people apologize right. for this occupation of Bajor, right. which was essentially the Holocaust. Right, so they would target their anger at him, and it would expiate the rest of the uh, people right. of, uh, of Cardassia. And, and from that point on, I mean, there were, there were so many you know, resultant episodes after that that ultimately were very, very obviously dealing with the Bajorans as the Jews dealing with their own hatred of the Nazis and the Nazis having to deal with what they did. Right. And, of course, the Nazis, we all know the Nazis are evil, but yet the Germans now look back at that time very, I mean, most of the Germans at least, very embarrassed. Right. Um, ashamed. Even. Ashamed even. Yeah. You, know, you cannot, talk, you, you cannot in, in Germany, you cannot say that the Holocaust didn't happen. That right. is illegal. Mm -hmm. And by the end of Deep Space Nine, the, the Cardassians reached that same point of now, at least, you know, thanks to their leaders, mm -hmm. being ashamed of what they did to the Bajorans. Mm -hmm. So in that way, yes, religion was brought in, still metaphorically, mm -hmm. in, in, by Star Trek. Yeah. Although, interestingly, it still go is true to the Roddenberry vision of the future that it's the root of all evil, in a, in a way, right? In, in other words, that it's be it causes more division. And uh, although the Cardassians didn't, you know, kill Bajorans because of their worship beliefs. Um, no, they just didn't have respect for those beliefs. Right, but right. Uh, no, they, they basically was for their, for their resources. Right. But, you know, religion continued to be part of Star Trek and, and Voyager in a very interesting character, which was Seven of Nine. The Borg were cyborgs. And that note can only be played so many times before it gets very boring. Eventually they bring in the concept of the Borg Queen and make the Borg more interesting. Mm -hmm. But then with Seven of Nine we discover that the Borg worship perfection. Mm -hmm. That the whole reason they do what they do mm -hmm. is because they are seeking perfection. Which is a very pagan idea. No, I think it, well, but couldn't it be a Jewish idea in that it's uh, you know, we're made in God's image. Mother 
apply to you. No, 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 but we're made in God's image, and there's a sense of, um, of holiness, and that we all should be elevating our behavior to be more godlike. Speaking of which, made in God's image, let's think about Star Trek, the motion picture. V'ger comes to Earth seeking its creator. Right. Which was just a rehash of the episode The Changeling, where no man comes to Earth seeking his creator. Right. And meets a bunch of humans, and, well, the humans can't be the creators, because I'm a machine, and right. my creator must be like me. Right. There's an old saying I heard many years ago, spirituality unites us, religion divides us. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that believing in something higher than oneself and, um, you know, having a faith in, you know, in a goodness, you know, that's the positives of religion. But, you know, we, you know, in the, in the world today, we see so many of the negatives of religion. You're listening to The World According to Gorf on jmintheam.org. I want to bring up a, another science fiction show that had a major religion aspect to it. Planet of the Apes? Mm, close. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there was too much religion in Planet of the Apes, except that, you know, God the created bomb. ape in, in God's... Yeah, they were worshipping the bomb, and right. that was a very obvious, yeah. um, you know... Well, if 19- you want to get into religion in Planet of the Apes, then you get into the whole evolution versus creation story. Yes. But we don't need to go there. What example... You realize, by the way, that our listeners out there are going to be uh, using some of these ideas in term papers and maybe doctoral theses. I just want to point that out. And maybe even in their phylacteries. Yes. (laughs) So religion had gone... In the 1960s, religion had gone from being one episode to, in the 1980s and 1990s, religion being something that was shown in some episodes as part of a character development to, in 2002, being an absolutely essential part of an ongoing plot line. And that was the new Battlestar Galactica. The Battlestar Galactica new series that was done by Ronald Moore. A veteran of Star Trek. A veteran of Star Trek, the next generation, that's true, and and Deep Space Nine. uh, And a graduate of Cornell University the same year that I did. He says wistfully. He says (laughs) Shatner-esquely. He says, Shatner, Lee. Hello, you've reached the William Shatner School of Dramatic Pauses. So, with Battlestar Galactica, the humans of Battlestar Galactica, the ones that were essentially decimated by the Cylons, the humans are polytheists. They believe in gods. And more specifically, they believe in many of the Roman gods that we had had. And the Cylons, these these metallic cyborg life forms believe in one god. One would think, how can a machine believe in god? But yet, the Cylons are all believing in this one god. So not only are they unusual, foreign to we humans, because they're not life forms, they're machines, but they're also foreign to us as polytheists because they're monotheists, which, of course, is very foreign to us viewers because most of us are not polytheists. We are monotheists, and we're watching polytheist humans. A very interesting juxtaposition of many, many things. But it wasn't just a few episodes dealing with this. This was a seriously you know, foundational part of the plot for the entire four-year run. And in the end? In the end, what we discover is that the humans and the Cylons can live together. The humans go and end up settling on Earth. Um, 
they still have their polytheistic beliefs, but we have seen the unification of the humans and the Cylons and the characters of Baltar and Number Six, who we discover, after all, are actually angels. And Starbuck, as well, who was an angel sent by some kind of a god. Um, I guess they never really deal with the question of who was right and who was wrong. Except that the uh, there is a minority of people who colonize Earth who believe in monotheism, mm -hmm. and eventually, eventually, that you know, you could say that maybe that was the seeds of monotheism on Earth was that group of people, and uh, it took you know millennia for that idea to take hold. Well, many you know, millennia passed down through the ages. I mean, at the time that the Battlestar Galactica folks arrived on Earth, I mean, we were probably... Seven or eight thousand years ago. No, even even further than that. Australopithecus. <laughs> no? Mark, you're the archaeologist. Yes, the Australopithecus afarensis. But let's face it, it didn't really happen, folks. It was just a show. We're not descended from it people from outer just space. A show. Move out of your parents' basement. Repeat to yourself, it was just a show. I should really just relax. Who knows what that's from? Anybody? <laughs> Mystery <laughs> Science Theater 3000? Oh, no, I never watched that. Oh, great show. For all you people who want to hunt it down. Right. The Marx reference was very clearly the Star Trek Get a Life, excuse me, the yes. Saturday Night Live Get a Life sketch. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Which, of course, none of us had or else we wouldn't, you know, actually... Yes, be, although, when I went to pitch out. a Klingon Bar Mitzvah episode to Star Trek, and I'm not kidding you, I really did do that at Paramount... Uh, I walked away at least with one consolation gift, which was a Star Trek, I believe it was 25th anniversary, maybe 30th anniversary ball cap. And on the front was the Star Trek logo, and on the back, monogrammed was Get a Life. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Right. But I always, I always getting back to Worf and, and so forth, I always thought, I agree with you, that there were a lot of similarities between the Klingons and uh, the Jewish people. And I posited that at 13 years old the Klingon youth would go through some kind of a religious ceremony because we had seen the pain sticks well, the and Worf and, and all that. Or what, well, there were, there were seven, actually. The right. Vulcans are seven. They right. cause one. Okay. Yes, so, I need a life. But they live but, much longer, so, you know. That's true. Yeah. So a Vulcan is really doing it, like, for a Klingon, that would be doing it when they were, like, two. Right, right. Yeah, just, se I, just seven in, in dog years or something. Yeah. I suppose I could have pitched it to, as Vulcans, but it was Klingons that were popular at the time. And... The idea I had was that you would stick a bunch of Klingon 13-year-olds on a spaceship, uh, probably a derelict spaceship, and just give them enough food for a month and tell them, okay, for you to be a man, you have to make it from one end of the Klingon Empire to the other end of the Klingon Empire without getting your cells killed, blown up, destroyed, what have you. And I thought this was a hilarious idea. The producers of Star Trek seem to have begged to disagree or beg to differ, and I did not sell the show. However, I did take the idea and run with it in a young adult novel called Camp Alien, which I have finished writing and I have to rewrite and give back to the literary agent and so forth. So something good did come of it in the end. Now, what's interesting is that a version of that made it into an episode um, where Worf got married. You are cordially invited. Where the bachelor party for Klingons is five days of torture. Where you and your friends basically have to, you know, deal with the worst possible environment you possibly can, and then survive it, and then of course you get into your toxins and get married. So, what would a Klingon bar mitzvah boy say on the on the bima the morning of uh, his bar mitzvah? Would he say, "Today 
is a good day to die. Today, for, I am a warrior. <laughs> that's good. Right, right. Well, that was good. That was spoken like work. That was great. Right. I try to do good for And for Kiddush, they would have lots of grach. The Hebrew and Klingon languages are very similar, you could say, probably. Yeah, a lot right. of spitting. Yeah. Right. I did a, a lot of guttural uh, utterances. Dach, <laughs> tuch. There you go. Very good. <laughs> I, uh, I did a cartoon on that. One, In fact, my most popular Jewish cartoon.com cartoon was uh, noting that Hebrew is the only uh, lingua franca. How do you say that? Lingua franca. Lingua franca. Thank you. It's amazing after 2,000 years of not being spoken that Hebrew was resuscitated as a modern spoken language. Is there any other language in the existence of uh, of humanity that has ever pulled off such a feat? And uh, somebody says, why yes? And gets up in a a Klingon uh, outfit and says, kaplah. And uh, the other character says, Klingon doesn't count. But of course, for us, it does. It does. Absolutely yes. it does. So you can check that out on jewishcartoon.com. Are there any other instances of religion in science fiction or fantasy? We've talked a lot about science fiction. What about fantasy? We touched on Lord of the Rings before. Hannah here is an expert uh, on uh, Harry Potter. So maybe... Harry oh. oh, Harry Potter. Comics. Very, very Christian. But I don't think it really has anything to do with religion, really. It's more just based on, like, just Culture. pure... No, it's just... It's not even. It's just, like... Pure wizardry and everything. There's nothing really about like religion. Or... Well, it's all paganism. It's it's pure. It, it's Christianity in its most pagan form, early pagan form, also. Yeah, I mean, a lot of Latin in there. But it's really like the only part that really like fully takes on a religious um, a religious form is just like the the scenes when it's Christmas and everything with Hermione and. Well, that's literally. Our religions, but look inside the world of Harry Potter. I mean, what do these people worship? The Death Eaters, for example. What do they worship? Well, the Death Eaters are, it, in a way, it's sort of like the Nazis almost. Like, it's like Voldemort is Adolf Hitler, and then all the Death Eaters are the Nazis who like follow him and pretty much kill anyone who doesn't follow their belief, which is like all the Muggles, which would be. Humans, if you don't know. And what about Harry Potter? And Harry is... I'm not really sure. Because he has followers as well, even if he doesn't want them. I mean, he does have followers, but they're not, like, religious followers. They're just, like... Oh, but a lot of them look up to him for strength. They look up for him to him for inspiration. But not for not as a godly figure, I don't think. I think more just as... I think they see him as a messianic figure. Somebody who's going to save them. Right. Superman with a wand. Well, <laughs> Superman is an interesting discussion in and of itself. <laughs> well, we can get to Superman. He was created by a couple of Jews. Indeed. Now, before before we, we had this discussion this evening, Gorf and I were, were, were chatting a little bit about Superman because my opinion of Superman, even though I know he was created by two Jews, is that it very much Christ-like. Um, you know, he he was sent to Earth by his father and raised by adopted parents. Oh. And, of course, you know, here is a person who can walk on water. Who, who couldn't have children of their own. Who couldn't have children of their own, that's true. Um, but he could walk on water. He could leave tall buildings in a single bound. I mean, basically, this is a guy who could do miraculous things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with such power... He did good. He was very, very devout. He kept all of his his powers very responsibly in check. 
you know, using them when he absolutely had to, uh, and, and getting followers to follow him because of the good works that he did. Um, so that's what I told Gorf, and then Gorf told me that I see it as the Moses story, because you have parents who send off their baby in a blanket, and in fact, in the early mm. stories, yeah. Superman's costume was made out of his blanket, space substitutes for the Nile, uh, the kindly Kents, the adoptive parents, represent uh, Pharaoh's daughter who raised him in the, in the palace, and he grows up to be the savior of his people to lead them from slavery into freedom. So it's the Passover story. And Superman, right. although to either of your stories, Superman stands for truth and justice. Right. right. Which are also very uh, God-given or God-inspired God concepts of, of right. the modern age. But don't discount, actually, the American way of truth, justice, and the American way, because for the creators, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the American way was such a powerful thing for the Holocaust period, for right. World War II, because Superman was created. I mean, Superman, right? That's a very German concept, the Superman. He was created in 1938, or that's right. when he first saw him. He was actually created in 1935, right. but you know, right. World War II was starting. So they were subverting... Nietzsche created him. Yes, yeah. and they, they were subverting this very uh, anti-Jewish concept, or rather concept that was used by or trumpeted by a very anti-Jewish uh, people or an anti-Jewish country. And uh, you have all kinds of uh, reasons why the Jewish creators of Superman named things the way they named them or built the storyline the way they built them. Uh, of course, uh, you have Jor-El, the House of El, Kal-El, all of that, um, the House of the Lord. Uh, and and Kal-El is God-God, right? Is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, Call, yeah. my one regret is uh, that when I was uh, the Batman editor at DC Comics, Julius Schwartz, who ushered in the Silver Age of Comics, he was the editor who ushered in the Silver Age of Comics, and recreated all of the classic Golden Age characters for the uh, then-modern age in the 60s. Um, he was at that point an emeritus editor, and he had an office. He came in once a week. And I enjoyed walking into that office. I find excuses to saunter into that office just to be able to talk with him and get a sense of the history. I mean, he was there from the beginning all the way through. And uh, he was then, I guess, in his late 70s, his early 80s. And I asked him at a certain point, why did the creators of Superman name him Kal-El? And he gave me the answer that I promptly did not write down and forgot. And I regret that. No. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, so anticlimactic. And we all have these theories, and, and they really are their theories, but I'm not sure that anybody has the definitive proven answer. I have a definitive answer. proven answer, yes, actually. Um, first of all, I think John's idea that he is Jesus is too particular. I think that he may be the Messiah, um, right. but he's not similar enough to Jesus. He doesn't die for us, he doesn't, you know, at least not in, in general. Well, he did in, in general. The, you know, miniseries Doomsday that came out. Right, that's true. Well, then that might right. make him more Christ like And right after, a few months later, after the reign of the Superman, he came back. He was resurrected. Right. right. But I, I would and say... And non-Jew was the one who oversaw that storyline. Here's but... what I think. I think Superman was created in 1938, and that's about five years after the Nazis took power in Nazi Germany. And Hitler was speaking to tens of thousands of, you know, uh, saluting uh, uh, soldiers and, soldiers, and yeah. countrymen and so forth. Um, it was a scary time, and the country was on the brink of war, and we knew it. 
Um, we knew it was only a matter of time before this had to be stopped. Um, and we were the emerging superpower in those days. I would say that it's we more... We being America. We being America. I would say that it's more like... Um, you know, the, the people of Metropolis are actually more like the Jews or any, you know, minority at risk. And that uh, Superman stands for America and that he is going to rescue from the villains of the world, Hirohito and Hitler and, yeah. you know, all the other people who've sprung up. I mean, even Stalin, um, you know, um, uh, that he was going to be the savior of these people, but not in a Christ-like sense, but just right. as sort of, you know, like America, that he, that it was an emerging, you know, early 20th century, mid 20, going into the mid 20th century. And it was this, you know, notion that America was going to save and instill, instill order on a very dangerous world. Well, and that's really what's, just, and I'm sorry, just, that, that's what Superman was all about. That's what Superman was all about because he was power incarnate that the Jews felt that they did not have. Here was a guy who had all the physical strength. The ladies loved him. He was uh, an adopted, adopted child in the most powerful land in the world, and he became their champion. And these two Nebuchadnezzar Jews who created this character wished that they had all of that. And of course, Clark Kent was a fantasy that wouldn't it be interesting if we could assimilate, that nobody would recognize us and we would have almost the last laugh against these people who didn't understand that this meek people, the Jews, are in fact secretly a lion. That they have this incredible power that's just waiting to burst, waiting to burst out once, of course, they dress in uh, a circus outfit with a, a big cape. Yeah. Yeah. I like uh, that. Minor, devout minority. Like yeah. That interpretation. Yeah. So, uh, and, and then you have Batman, of course, and I don't know that many people have discussed Batman's Jewish... Everybody always discusses Superman's Jewish origins. He's so waspy. How can but he be Jewish? Batman, uh, Batman was created by Jews as well. Bob Kane was Bob Jewish. Kane, uh, Jerry... Was, I don't think Jerry Robinson was Jewish. Wait, I think I'm wrong about that. Of course he was Jewish. Yes, Jerry Robinson, a Jew as well, uh, who created Robin and uh, co-created the Joker. Um, so Robin, Robin, son, son of Robin. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Robin was his son, Robinson. Never mind. That's interesting. Yes. That's very interesting. I never thought of that. Before. You ever thought about Robin being created by somebody named Robinson? No. Okay. Believe it or not. Okay. What's this in the middle of my face? Oh, my nose. <laughs> <laughs> but the comic book industry has gone through some very interesting... I think the comic book industry, in a way, mirrors uh, the society uh, where the, it, the, the latest immigrant wave tends to migrate towards the helm of the comic book industry. So you had Jews in the beginning who originated the comic book industry, and as they became prosperous, I think you had uh, African-Americans who then uh, rose to uh, certain positions of prominence, and Asian immigrants who are in positions of prominence now. Jim Lee, for example, an Asian-American who is one of the executives running DC Comics at the moment. And you have the characters who are so well-constructed that they are able to be reinvented for each new generation according it to become the uh, embodiment of whatever ideals the immigrant group that's running the comic book industry wants to portray. So the, we just referred to the Christian-like allegorical story of Doomsday and Superman and, and all of that. In the mid-80s, well, perhaps that's reflective of uh, who was 
running the uh, comic book industry at that time. And now I'm not, I, I'd have to look at it uh, very closely. I haven't actually thought about it. But given that you have actually, you know what? Come to think of it, I'll give you a very specific example. This is more on the nose. It's less allegorical than what we've been talking about. But I just read that Jeff Johns, who's the number three or so at DC Comics, who is uh, a writer of great skill and popularity, uh, he is a of Lebanese extraction. He grew up in Detroit, and he has created the first Arab Green Lantern. Hmm. So, indeed, you have characters, once again, I mean, it, it, Green Lantern was created by Mark Nodell, which I believe may have been a pseudonym, I'm not sure, not sure if it's Jewish or not, but certainly created in the era when Jews were creating all these characters. Here, again, is another example of a character who's constructed so cleverly that you can imprint upon this character your own sets of beliefs and turn it into a mirror for yourself. By the way, the other the other group that I that I that remind me a lot of the Jewish people um, from science fiction are uh, and forgive me, John, because I know you're the expert on Babylon Five and my That's memory okay. is dim. But Babylon Five, uh, what was the uh, race again who were treated kind of like the Jews and you know were taken over? Their planet was taken over. The Narn. The Narn, right. The Narn. Exactly. Right. The Narn the, yeah, the, the, in Babylon 5, there are five races that are sort of the most powerful, in, in, in Earth is one of them, the Minbari, uh, the Vorlons, the Centauri, and the Narn. And the Centauri and the Narn had had a very occupier-occupied relationship for a while. Uh, the Narn had been freedom fighters trying to struggle for their own liberty from, from the iron hand of the very Roman Empire-like Centauri, and um, the uh, they had only just managed to to beat them back. Basically, made it more costly to occupy them than to just let them go. And the Centauris, Centauris, Centauri, yeah, were very much like the Nazis in the sense that they had elevated their culture to a very high degree, and yet then committed atrocities and, uh, you know, but much in the way that Nazi Germany had achieved, you know, great heights in uh, civility and culture, high culture, and, uh, you know, contributing, and even to, the, I think they had the strictest uh, treatment of animal, the rules on the treatment of animal laws, really, that protected animals, and yet they were able to, you know, you know visit these atrocities on, right. on other people. Yeah, well, I think there's also a, a, a parallel to the Roman Empire, but of course the Roman Empire is one of the Reichs that happened before the Third Reich, if I remember correctly, the way that uh, Hitler was describing. You know, the Third Reich was, there had to well, be the a... The Second Reich, I think, was Bismarck, if I'm not mistaken. I totally need to brush up on this, oh, though. Okay. And the First Reich, I don't think so, because I think it was based on Germanic political or political history. I don't think okay, it was based on the like, Romans. Well, my I could be wrong. Well, no, look, the, the, number one was Commander Reich. Doctor Who is clearly a Jewish character because who other than a Jewish mother would name their kid the Doctor? <laughs> well, he Does he have a brother really, of the lawyer? He wasn't, named, <laughs> he wasn't named the Doctor originally. He made up the name, if I recall. Mostly because his mother told him to. <laughs> Actually, I, I'd say the Doctor, if anything, is an angel. Or potentially, you know, Christ-like Messiah, because he does travel yeah. around with companions. People, you know, follow him and, you know, sort of preach his gospel. But let's face it, Doctor Who started in the 1960s as, you know, the equivalent of a dotty old 
old man scientist with, with a box that traveled through space and time. But I'd say that when he was brought back um, in, you know, the, you know, recently in the, in the new series of Doctor Who, he's taken on much more of a unique role in that he is right. the only Time Lord that is left. Yeah. Um, he loves the Earth. You know, he can travel anywhere in space and time, but he particularly loves humanity. And the idea about God and Jesus, uh, or Muhammad, or any of the other Buddha, any of the other religions that you have, is it's a huge universe out there, and yet somehow there's a really small speck of dust orbiting this tiny little yellow star in the middle of an uninteresting part of an uninteresting galaxy. Uh, is God's like favorite place to be. He loves us more than anything else in the entire universe. Now, it was very easy to come up with that 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 years ago when we didn't even know there could possibly be life on other planets. Like, of course, there's only us, and there's some God up there looking down from the, the clouds saying, you know, I like those guys. Those are my chosen people. So I'm not going to let them eat pork. Oh. <laughs> Comments, questions, or you just want to fetch? Go to facebook.com slash the world according to Gorf. Do we feel, moving into the future, that we are headed towards a Roddenberry vision or a Battlestar Galactica vision? Do we feel that there is a place for religion in a world that is becoming increasingly technological and logical and science-based? Or do we feel that we are inevitably going to evolve past that? What does science fiction have to say? I think that, uh, that actually this is a debate that will be eternal because uh, you will always have the lack of the ability to prove God's existence. Um, and you'll always have people who believe that uh, science and rationality uh, can suffice and there's no quote-unquote need for uh, a, an explanation that we can't see, hear, smell, or so forth. One of the things that I personally suspect may happen in the future is that we will discover that the universe is in fact somewhat malleable. Whether it's God or ourselves, the idea that there's no such thing as a coincidence is involved in a lot of spirituality and a lot of religion. But the question is how physically do miracles happen? Well, we've all heard about dark matter and dark energy. We just don't know quite what it is yet. But the universe weighs a lot more than it actually does. There's a lot more mass than we can actually weigh in the universe. And there's something holding this universe together because the gravitational forces aren't enough to keep the universe expanding as slowly as it is. Dark matter, dark energy. What is it? Maybe that's what God and or the universe is using to make things <laughs> better different the way it wants to, the way we want them to be. You know what it is? Jewish guilt. <laughs> Jewish guilt is dark matter. Yes, Jewish guilt is dark matter. Jews in space! You're listening to The World According to Gorf on the Nachum Siegel Network.